Well, this Christmas we have been going through a number of Old Testament texts that talk about Christ as shepherd. We did Ezekiel 34 a couple weeks back. We did Ezekiel 37, none of which we would typically choose as Christmas texts, but very much breathe the hope of Advent and of Christmas. Um, and now here we are in Micah 5, and I have a very un-Christmas-like introduction. Imagine you've been told that the Lord was coming. However, instead of hearing the background music of joy to the world, you're told that the Lord's coming means absolute judgment. Your people have turned from God, devoted themselves to other things. Your legal systems are flawed and your leaders pervert justice for bribes. Wicked people mistreat foreigners, children, and widows. Your preachers twist the truth in order to grow their churches and become more significant in their culture. As a result, God says that everything you know is about to be destroyed. Your city is going to lie in ruins. Your temple, your church is going to be broken down so much so that it will soon be overgrown with brush. Your king will be humiliated. Your leaders will be punished by a conquering army. And if you survive, you will be carried away into captivity. Merry Christmas. This is essentially the message of Micah as we find it. This is the prophet Micah. Now we, we tend to hone in on Micah 5, 2 through 5 and hone in on those three verses. And we miss the greater context of everything Micah says. Micah was written 700 years before Jesus' birth, and it's in the context of Judah's rebellion, in the context of sin and judgment, that Micah breathed this hope of the gospel, breathed the hope of a coming ruler. You know, Micah, at the very beginning, in Micah chapter 1, says, the Lord is coming down from his place. That sounds to be a very Christmas message, Right? The Lord is coming down from his place. The Lord is coming. Joy to the world, right? But Micah says, no, not joy. Fear. Terror. Because of sin. So here's the question that I had going through Micah. You know, I knew we'd be singing joy to the world. My kids were practicing it 24-7 without end. Uh, And so I just started wondering... What makes the message that the Lord is coming good news for sinners? I mean, let's just take everything that we know about God, right? He's holy. He's perfect, right? We know that according to scriptures and God's own testimony, that God cannot endure sin. He will not merge with sin. He cannot have a relationship with dirty, nasty sin. He just can't. It's vile in his eyes. It's something that must be judged. And so here's, here's the question. If, if Micah sees the Lord's coming is bad news for sinners, then what makes it good news for us? How do we get from the Lord is coming, the Lord is stepping down from his place to joy to the world, the Lord has come. Something has to happen for that message to switch from fear to joy. Well, I think as we traverse through Micah, we begin to see that transition Micah chapter 1, the Lord is coming. He's stepping down of his place. He will judge. He will tread upon the high places. Mountains will melt. Valleys will split. People will die. Micah chapter 2, you have sinned. You have played the part of a harlot and you have uh, uh, transgressed against your God and broken covenant. Micah chapter 3, more judgment. Micah 4, things begin to shift. 
But God will not forget his covenant. God will not forget his people. God will send his people a king. And then comes Micah 5. All of this restoration in the context of the bad news of God coming becomes good news when it leads to this coming ruler from Bethlehem. I just want to ask you today, is the Lord's coming really good news for you? When we say joy to the world, the Lord has come, is it really good news for you? Do you have that one missing element that turns the bad news that the holy God is coming to the good news that the Lord has come and you now dwell secure with God? And in this, we will see the gospel message. So my hope is, is that as we look carefully at Micah 5 in context, not just whitewashing it full of Christmas snow paint, but actually to look at it in context of what he's saying, that we will consider seven truths about the coming ruler from Bethlehem. And as we think about these seven truths, my prayers is that we will bask in the fact that we desperately need this king. That we will stop pretending that we're put together. That we will stop pretending as if we are self-sufficient. As if we don't really desperately need him. But instead bask in our need for him and bask in the supreme joy that he has come. Now, we get to the first truth. This king that's to come, according to Micah 5, will fill our leadership void. As mentioned already, God was sending a conqueror to Judah because of their sin. From our side of history, we know that the conqueror was eventually Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army who came, they set up siege, they surrounded Jerusalem, starved them to death, so much so that people were eating people, and then suddenly the gates broke open and all the captives were carried off into Jerusalem. And it's that event that Micah has in mind in Micah chapter 5 verse 1 that sets the context, sets the background for what we're about to hear in Micah 5 2. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so here we have this prophet foreseeing a time when Jerusalem's broken down, when the king is led out in humiliation, struck on the cheek, which is a symbol of shame, a symbol of defeat. He's struck on the cheek. And this is exactly what happens. When we see the king Zedekiah led out of the city, his kings are slaughtered, his kids are slaughtered, and then Nebuchadnezzar blinds him. So that's the last thing he ever sees. That's the ultimate cheek slapping that you could ever, ever know in the ancient world. And yet in all of this, the whole time Zedekiah's counselors were saying, no disaster will come upon us. The Lord loves us. The Lord's in our midst. Nothing bad's going to happen. And he ignored all the prophetic warnings that told him to repent that told him not to seek restoration without repentance. Now, I think the whole account of Micah 5.1 is meant to set us into the context to, to see the dangerous, deadly consequences of sin. My friends, no one's going to do you any favors by making light of sin. No one's doing you any favors by lessening the seriousness of our rebellion against God. Sin is sin. God is a holy God. And in his holiness, he will not indulge sin. He will not even allow himself one, allow sinful people into his presence. He is, he is the God of holiness. He is the God who is perfect. He is the God who is spotless. And as the whole Bible warns, sin leads to death. 
Sin leads to shame. Sin leads to disaster. And it's precisely because Israel's leaders have indulged in sin, such as many of our leaders today, and failed to lead their people in repentance that the only natural result is ruin. My friends, you may be sitting here with secret sins of your own. You may be sitting here with secret habits, secret addictions, secret things that you love on your own. And you may be sitting in your own impending doom, your own impending ruin. Sin has serious consequences. Leaders here in Jerusalem were meant to restrain their people from sin and to lead in righteousness. They were to help their people understand God's way, God's will, what God wanted. And yet they had utterly failed. Not only were they themselves not righteous, they failed to help anyone else toward a righteous lifestyle, toward a holy living, toward repentance when they sinned. My friends, the entire Bible proclaims the message that we cannot even rule ourselves without doing what we want, which is sinful. You add on top of that, that all of our human leaders have failed us in being able to lead us in holiness. All of them have failed us and able to lead us in righteousness. In all of this, Micah 5.1 wants us to know human judges, human kings, human leaders will be disgraced, will be shamed, and will ultimately fail. But according to Micah 5.2, a ruler is coming from Bethlehem who will not fail. A ruler is coming from Bethlehem who will lead his people in righteousness, who himself will be righteous, who will deal with the sin issue and bring his people back to God, and his reign will lead to lasting peace. So the first truth that Micah 5 wants you to to see, we have a gaping void in who leads us. Leading ourselves isn't sufficient. The leaders that we have, whoever they may be, are not sufficient. They're failed humans. they, They have failed in righteousness. And so our only hope depends on the righteous king who reigns over all. So at that very beginning, he, he wants them to understand that their king is about to be struck on the cheek. Their, their judge is about to be let out in disgrace and shame. And because of that, they need a better ruler, one who will not be shamed, one who will not be disgraced, one who will not be defeated. And that's the context that he gives us. Now we get to the second truth about the coming ruler. He's to come from an unexpected place. Micah 5.2 says this, but you, O Bethlehem of Pathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. I don't know if you've been to Bethlehem, but Bethlehem's some obscure village in the south side of Jerusalem. Nothing really important comes from Bethlehem. Sure, some significant things happened there. Ruth met Boaz there, and David was anointed as the future king there. But altogether, nobody's looking at Bethlehem to be the place where God will send this long-awaited global king. That word, uh, you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, actually means you're too insignificant to even be considered a part of Judah. You're too inconsequential. And yet, it's from the seemingly insignificant, unimportant place that the promised ruler would emerge. 
He's going to come from somewhere they did not expect. He would not come from Jerusalem, nor from any of the massive superpowers of the time, like Assyria or Babylon or Egypt. God doesn't say he comes from D.C. He comes from Bethlehem. He would not be born into a palace. He would not be born into a mighty, massively strong kingdom. He would not be born in the White House. He would be born in a village surrounded by fields where sheep were kept. Altogether unimportant place. Now, why would the place be important in this village? Why is it important for us to understand that this ruler would come from Bethlehem, this rather unimportant place? My friends, at the time, Judah was seeking its own restoration in a number of ways. They were making big, powerful friends who could be allies. At the time, Zedekiah is trying to wheel and deal with Egypt and with all these different kinds of superpowers in the world so that they can become significant again, so that they can become powerful again. They tried to build up their treasuries. He's upping the taxes. He's, he's uh, taking out, out more gold and more silver out of the yearly incomes. And they even tried to fight and win it all on their own. So he sets up this rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar so that he can finally, finally make Judah a world power again. Now, the problem was there's nothing necessarily wrong with just all that, except for the fact they tried to do it all without repentance and without God. It's a good thing to want restoration. It's a good thing to want renewal. It's a good thing to want to have a fruitful kingdom. But a fruitful kingdom completely void of God is a false idea. It's a vapor of a dream. It simply cannot happen. And it doesn't happen in the way that we would make it happen. My friends, I, I, I feel like a, a, a repetitious preacher sometimes, but I, I just feel like it's good for us to realize that, that, that God's redemption doesn't happen through massive policymaking. God's redemption doesn't happen in the private meeting rooms of big, important people. God's purposes aren't carried forward just by presidents or by strong people. No, God's redemption is one in places like Bethlehem. I mean, just think of the foolishness of the entire gospel. He's going to be born in Bethlehem in this village, in this unimportant place that's relatively insignificant that nobody else would choose that he's going to come from there. In fact, he's born in Bethlehem, eventually lives in Nazareth. And then people around him are saying nothing good comes from Nazareth. So they look at him and they reject him. And not only that, let's, let's look at more of our God's oddities. In God's big, supreme, majestic, wise, strong plan, he foolishly chooses to take this Nazarene carpenter born from Bethlehem, nail him to the cross, and that's how redemption will be accomplished. Who would choose that plan? Who would choose the weakness of a carpenter being whipped and beaten, have a crown of thorns placed on his head and a cross on his back to be the plan through which he would accomplish his promises. Now, if I'm strategy making with God, I want big armies. I want big kings. I mean, if we're going to play this, this cosmic axis and allies kind of game, then I'm going to store up all my resources and I'm going to work in such a way that I'm going to work through big things 
God doesn't do that. God doesn't bring his king to Jerusalem. God doesn't bring his king through big, massive people. He works through barren women like Sarah. He works through leaders who have speech impediments like Moses. He works through shepherd boys like David. God cloaks his strength and weakness and displays his wisdom through foolishness. Have you ever thought about that? Here in his magnificent plan, he leads the plan of redemption straight to a, an insignificant place. Now, I think that this just for a moment should remind us that redemption comes on God's terms, not ours. Here's the question. Are you like Judah looking for good things, joy, peace, security, restoration in the wrong places? Are you looking for restoration for you, for security for you by making allies with men? By upping your savings account, just, just in case, maybe that will bring joy in the future when everything goes to pot. Maybe if I have a full emergency bank account, then maybe I can secure joy for myself in the future. Are you looking for good things in the wrong places? Are you working for God's things by man's ways? It seems logical to say, to say that peace can be earned through big promotions, lots of influence and many friends. Common sense may say that joy can be found in full bank accounts and large comfortable houses and economically secure times and absolute perfect health where there's no headaches, there's no chronic pain, there's no backaches, there's, there's no cancers, no nothing. Sure, common sense would say that. Self-help books claim that the keys to self-restoration and self-improvement can be won by six easy steps. Oh, that makes sense to us. That seems like wisdom. That seems like strength. And yet, if we truly want the restoration we seek, we can only come to one foolish place, Bethlehem, and the Savior that is born there. When you go to Bethlehem, the place where they believe that Christ was born, there's a, there's a door that's made really low. It's called the kneeling door. And the reason they put it there was because at the time there were Muslims, there were Christians, there were people from all over the world coming to see this place. And they wanted to present the message that in order to see this, the, the place where this king had been born, all had to kneel. I mean, it's so low that all have to kneel down. I'm a pretty short guy and I still had to stoop to get in. My friends, that's the truth of the gospel. You cannot find restoration. You cannot find reconciliation. You cannot find joy, peace, and security in any other way. It may seem upside down. God may seem to be foolish. God may seem to be weak, but that's God. God likes to work in that kind of way. Choosing Bethlehem as a place of origin of the long-awaited king is just the sort of oddity to remind you that he's king. Is just the sort of strange providence to remind you that he can turn Bethlehem into the birthplace of the world's Savior. In the end, all who look to their own wisdom and strength will see just how foolish and weak they really were. 
That's the fear that I have for us. It's that in all of our plans and all of our scheming and all of our strategies to try to win certain things, that in the end will be proven just how foolish and weak we were because we refused to look to God for his wisdom and strength. As foolish as it may seem, as weak as it may seem, what if God's plan is for us to suffer for a time being? What if God's plan is for us to be so humbled that we absolutely know our dependence upon Christ? That may seem foolish, and yet in the wisdom of God, he is working redemption on his terms. It is his sovereign initiative, not ours. Now we come to another truth. Micah shows us that God's king will reign on the Lord's behalf. This is a little detail, and it's embedded in verse 2, in which God says, From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now, why would God say for me? Why not say for you? Isn't the king for them? Well, yes, the king's for them. But for me shows a little something uh, more significant here. The little phrase reveals that the coming ruler will not rule according to his own agenda. We just experienced a, uh, an election, and each president had his own agenda, and, and now we're starting to see the, the agenda of, of the president-elect, and you just start to see all these agendas laid out and all this kind of stuff, and each man has his own agenda. Here's what I want to do. This king will have one agenda, and it's the agenda of God. This king doesn't have shifting policies. His policy is the reign of God on earth. This person's policy isn't unbiblical, isn't against God's will. This person's policy is exactly according to the way that God wants it to be. You know, in Deuteronomy 17, God declared that the king, whoever sat on Israel's throne, was to handwrite the copy of the law. Can you imagine having to write the first five books of Moses by hand and from memory? Why would he have the kings do that? Well, in order to ensure that they would remember that any laws they passed were not their laws to make. Any justice they administered wasn't their justice to decide. It was up to them to reign under God's rule. They were not the ultimate king. He was king. They were prince. He was king. They were vice regent. They were the representative of God's reign on the throne. That's what Adam was supposed to be. And being a dominion maker is as people saw Adam in the image of God, that they would see God's dominion over all the earth. This ruler, for the first time ever, will be the one and only ruler who leads not according to his own agenda, but according to God's. He leads his people away from chasing after their own gods, away from chasing after their own affections, away from chasing after their own pleasures. My friends, why do we need a king? Because we are drifting sheep who wander away every which direction. I mean, on Monday, I know my heart drifts in this way. On Tuesday, it drifts another way. On Wednesday, it might subtly drift back. And then on Thursday, it drifts again. We are wandering sheep. And as long as our hearts are not tethered to Christ, we will continue to drift away. It is a part of our human tendency to drift away from God. And yet this king's agenda is to tether us to himself to tether us to his own righteousness so that we can live righteously before God. You remember that old song that says, here's my heart, take and seal it. And then it talks about uh, with fetters, you know, so that 
prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. So, so you, you know that song? Well, this is essentially what this king is going to do. He's going to make it so that we can finally obey God. He's going to make it so that we can finally dwell with God, so that our drifting stops, so that those moments when we believe that, uh, uh, that God is distant and far away, that he brings us back to him. He is the king who tenderly brings us back when we stray. And my friends, you do stray. You do stray. You have the tendency to, the propensity to do so often, many times a day. You need a shepherd to bring you back. You need a shepherd to bring you back to God's will, to God's reign, so that you can continue to have life with God. I've seen many of people wreck their lives thinking that they can't go astray. And before they know it, they're in ditches and valleys and pits and gasping for breath. Here's the next truth. God's king will end our exile. From Genesis 3 and throughout the rest of scripture, we see the perfect truth. Sin exiles us from God. Every single human being is separated from God because of sin. This isn't God's vindictive way of dealing things. It's simply the fact of the matter that God is perfect and pure. You wouldn't throw diamonds in the mud, so don't throw God into sin. That's kind of the idea here. God is perfect. He is pure. He cannot dwell with sin, especially knowing that sin is anti-God. Sin is anti-Him, whatever it is. Sin seeks to dethrone God. It wants to un-God God. And so can you imagine being in the same room with the very person you wish didn't exist? Well, that's why God can't be with sin, because sin is so utterly antithetical to him. And being a holy, perfect God, he simply cannot endure or indulge his presence. Adam and Eve sinned, and what happened? They were driven from Eden. The people of Israel and Judah sinned, and what happened? They were driven from the promised land. And so all humanity stands far off from God because of its sin. So here's the question. How do we end our exile? How do we bridge the gap and come near to God? Micah tells us that it is only through the coming ruler who will definitively end the exile from God's presence. Micah 5.3 says this, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she, is, she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now here Micah says that Israel is going to be given up. That is, they're going to remain in exile. They're going to be handed over to the nations. And they'll be in exile until a certain woman gives birth to a certain child. Now, given that so much of this prophecy is focused on Bethlehem, I think it's pretty clear that he has in mind Mary, right? And Jesus being born. When he, she who is in labor gives birth to the ruler... Then begins the return. Then the brothers come back home. Then the family that was scattered throughout all the nations return back to God's promised land. This is why we celebrate Christmas with such joy. At Christmas, we remember the birth of God's king and we celebrate the end of the exile that has come through him. No more do we stand far off. My friends, I love preaching at SBIC because I'd at least get an amen somewhere here. Your exile's over. Separation is gone. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Through him, every people, every tribe, every nation 
come to God to worship God. When did that become a boring fact? When did that become a lesser truth? A mundane reality? Back in the Old Testament, you'd have to stand outside the gate. You would hand the priest your sacrifice so that you could just keep praying. He would take your sacrifice in, he would slaughter it, he would burn it. You couldn't go into the gate, you couldn't go into the holy of holy, you couldn't go into the holy place, and then you couldn't get past the curtain to the holy of holies. Jesus come and has, has come and torn down the gate, he's opened the doors, and he's torn the curtain. And the holy of holies is straight through. And he stands there at the gate saying, straight through, no left or right. That's what God has done for you. This Christmas, you may feel far off from God. I have pastored enough people this year to know that there are some of you that in isolation this year has, brought, has caused you to, to feel as if you are on your own. As is typical with isolation, you have been left to your own thoughts, which is a dangerous place for many of us. Your own depression, your heartaches, your sinful attitudes, your sinful habits. And you have languished in fear and anxiety that this is all there is. You can't seem to turn off the television, to turn off the news. And you sit there in the dark with the glare of the TV in anxiety, in fear, watching your world fall apart. And you wonder, where's God? You open your Bible and the joy's gone. You hear your favorite worship song and it just doesn't move your heart. Your affections for God have grown cold. Your spiritual muscles have become cramped and your worship is rusty because it's been unused. And you just don't really, I mean, there's nothing in your own evaluation that really sets you apart as a Christian other than what you say, saying that you're a Christian, but you don't really feel it. You don't feel that that warm presence like you used to feel. You don't read that passage and just get those goosebumps on your back like you used to because it just doesn't feel real anymore. The sickness of COVID just doesn't make you feel as if you actually do have eternal life. The fears that you might lose your job in the new year just doesn't actually feel like Christ is your shepherd anymore. So you may be sitting here feeling that way. You may be sitting here wondering, where is the Lord? And why is this distance between him and me so insurmountable? Why can't I do anything to bridge the gap? My friends, the gap has already been bridged. As long as you sit there wondering what you can do to get closer to God, the more you neglect to see that there is one who has brought you near to God already. My friends, I'm not denying the fact that there are times that God seems hidden. I'm not denying the fact that there are some times that our spiritual muscles are really just cold and out of shape. That the fires of our affections just are embers at times. Yes. But that doesn't change the fact that the curtain's been split definitively. There's no one sewing it back up right now. There's no new walls being built, no new separations. It's broken. The walls are shattered. Worse than the Berlin Wall that once split Germany in half, that wall is gone. 
This spiritual wall that divided you from Christ, the Red Sea that separated you from God, the curtain, the big, heavy, thick curtain has been torn in two, and now you can go in in confidence and in free access. Typically, the one thing that keeps us from enjoying the access to God is thinking that we have to do something else to get it. Instead of just enjoying it for what it is. Instead of coming in dependence in Jesus and saying, I feel cold today. Can you heat me up? I'm out of it today. Can you bring me near, Jesus? You already have. Can you pick me up? I'm a lame beggar today. Can you carry me into the Holy of Holies? I just don't have the strength to do it myself. Most of us don't pray that way. But can you imagine if every day we woke up and we just didn't feel like it, we felt separated from God. We just asked Jesus to remind us of what's true and ask him to bring us near to himself. He's already won. We already have that access. God has already declared you as his. You are his righteous people. He's guaranteed that as long as Christ lives, you will never again be exiled and separated from him. My friends, it breaks my heart that a microvirus, a few economic problems, and a presidential election has caused us to feel as if the curtain's been put back up. Really? One calendar year is enough for us to feel as if all of redemption has been rewinding? What has changed? What has, what has changed about the reality of who we are or what's been given to us? There might be a new president. There might be new struggles. There might be new things like masks, things that you've never seen before in your lifetime, sure. But the curtain's still torn. Christ is still king. God is still on the throne. You're still saved, and you still have the presence of God forever because you trust in him. As far as I'm concerned, there's not much else that's changed. The world was broken before, and it's broken now, and it will be broken tomorrow. But your exile is over. My friends, that is the beauty of it. And there's some of you here that may not have trusted in Christ. You do feel distant from God, and rightfully so, because no matter what way you try to climb over a wall, you, just like everyone else, have to be brought in, not climbing over anything on your own. You simply can't do it. You have to be brought in, and that's where you come to Christ, who brings you in. He's the gate. He's the door. He's the ripped curtain, according to Hebrews 10. It was his flesh that was ripped, thereby providing access. Micah foresees all this when the exile is over and the people of God are coming back from Babylon and they're coming back from the nations and they're dancing and they're singing and the songs are lifting up. And I don't know if we're singing joy to the world at that point or whatever, but we're singing and we're dancing and celebrations happening and we march into the presence of God to live with him forever. Now we come to yet another truth. Micah's vision also reveals that the coming king will be a strong and sufficient shepherd. When the exile is over, Micah says, he shall stand. So there's one individual. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. 
in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. That's verse 4. Now, just consider, just slow down when you read the Bible once in a while and just appreciate some of the verbs that this author uses. He says that he will stand. What is stand? How does standing give us hope? What is the image of a standing shepherd? Well, he's not sitting. He's not laying. He's not a lazy boy. He's not lounging, right? He doesn't have his head leaning against a rock. He's not leaning on his staff. He's standing. What does that tell us about this coming king? He's the only one who can stand and stand and stand and stand and stand and stand and never get tired. He's the only one who stands and never has to sit. He's the only one who can stand and never has to sleep. He's the only one who could open his eyes and never have to close them. And even because he has died once and risen, he never has to die again. And therefore his eyes will never be closed again. A standard, a standing shepherd brings comfort to the sheep. You can sleep. Because your shepherd stands. You can rest because he's watchful. A standing shepherd, the image of a standing shepherd is this image of a vigilant guard who watches over his sheep. Can you just imagine the beauty of his love for you? That 2 a.m. in the morning, when you wake up, your back hurts, you're stiff, and yet it's again another uncomfortable night. You try to medicate by looking at Facebook. You try to medicate by looking at your favorite news source, and it just get, makes it worse, and it just swells up. How great is his love for you that at 2 a.m. in the morning, you don't have to wake him up? How great is it at 5 a.m. when your spouse says that their left arm hurts and they need to get to the hospital because they feel like their heart's beating out of their chest? How great is it that at 5 a.m. he's already there standing? You don't have to rouse him. You don't have to get him up. How great is it that the fact that we have a president who is stepping down and another president who is stepping up and he will step down and then another president will step up and he will step down, that Jesus steps up and never steps down. How great is it that he will never die? How great is it that our greatest shepherd will live and live and live and stand and stand? My friends, every other human shepherd gets tired. They have to sit. They have to vacate. They have to sleep. They may be struggling with the same things you have. All of them at some point have to close their eyes in sleep and then eventually in death. And not Micah's shepherd, though. He stands, his eyes open, his heart beating, ever vigilant, ever ready to move to rescue his needy sheep. And all because he is the resurrected, risen, forever living shepherd who watches over you. Now, in addition to being a strong and sufficient shepherd, this coming king will exercise a global dominion. Micah says, and they, God's sheep, shall dwell secure, and now he shall be great to, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Notice Micah's claim here. Okay, listen again to those words. Micah's claim is that the sheep will be safe, and this is directly connected with the truth that he is king and great over to the ends of the earth. Let me just put it simply for you. Micah foresees a king who is all powerful. Micah foresees a king that all the nations belong to him. 
Micah foresees a king that the world and everything in it is under his control. Whether it be coronaviruses, whether it be political enemies, whether it be rumors of wars, whatever it is, Micah sees that it's all his. He is great to the ends of the earth. It is his strength that reigns over the ends of the earth. We may be fearing global pandemics. We may be fearing international economic declines. We may be fearing world wars. And yet, there's still peace in the whisper. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's where we find peace. All these things we now fear and dread will one day be wiped away. And for those of us who trust in him, we will dwell in the shepherd's green pastures forever. Now we get to the most important truth, the, the best line that we have in Micah 5. Here's what it says. God's king will be his people's peace. It says it plainly. He shall be their peace. It doesn't say he will bring them peace, right? Because that would make peace like a thing, right? It's an accessory. He's coming with him. He's bringing joy, hope, and peace. Just many of these accessories that he's bringing with him, a gift. No, it doesn't say this. It says, he will be their peace. Peace is not a thing anymore. Peace is a person. And basically he's saying, as long as this person is here, you'll have peace. As long as he lives, your peace will live. As long as he reigns, then peace will reign. He shall be their peace. Now think of this in connection of how much peace we have lost this year. Because we have forgotten that peace isn't a thing to be lost or had. It's a person that we have forever. Paul picks up on it, probably reading Micah 5 on his, in his mind. And he applies it to Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. My friends, the peace we long for can be found in one person. The peace we long for can't be found in a bottle, can't be found in a bank account, can't be found in a job. It can only be found in Christ. You may have come in here because it's Christmas. This is the second or third time you might have been here this year, and it's Christmas and you're here. And you might have come in thinking, I'm coming, but I don't necessarily need this Jesus figure that everybody's talking about. Yes, he's good to know. Yes, he's good to have. I don't mind claiming I'm a Christian. I don't mind claiming that that I'm, I'm, I'm in good with him or whatever, I don't necessarily see myself as being dependent. I don't have a need or a use of a savior that I come to every day. A savior that I depend on in all things. Men, women, things like COVID and future uncertainty call your bluff. Those who lie awake at night wondering what's going to happen tomorrow, those who fight closing their eyes because they're afraid of what might happen when they let down their watch, the bloodshot, eye, bloodshot eyes, the trembling hearts, the anxious minds, the fearful seclusion, the alcohol-induced stupors, the self-medicating tactics, all reveal that they don't have anyone to shepherd them. That you desperately need the shepherd. Micah preaches a gospel of hope 
and peace. To anyone who thinks they have no need of a shepherd, he presents the beautiful picture of what this shepherd will do. And he offers this shepherd, beckoning them to find rest and satisfaction. Rest, just think of it, real rest. Not just sleep, rest in the true king. The shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep and now stands and lives and watches over them. My friends, it has been a tough year. That may be an understatement for some of you. It's been a year in which many of us have developed bad habits. It's been a year in which many of us have completely stopped our spiritual growth for the sake of just surviving. It's been a year in which we have developed fears and anxieties and all these things. And yet we end this year with Micah 5. And next week, Psalm 23, remembering that the Lord is our shepherd. We end this year realizing that when everything else goes away, when everything else is threatened, when everything else is taken, we still have our shepherd. And we shall not want. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for rest, for peace, Lord, that the news of Christ's coming will be good news, Father. Lord, I pray that the ruins that have come into the lives of people here, Father, that they'll be rebuilt. That those who have been broken and shattered and fractured, Father, that you'll heal them, God. That those who are thirsty will find drink in Christ, the water of life, and food in Him, the bread of life, and that they will eat and be full. Father, I speak knowing that there are so many people here with chronic pain, with struggles, with fears, with anxieties, and yet, God, in it all, Christ stands as shepherd to watch his sheep. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you help us celebrate Christmas as we should. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.